folks, for this week we have two episodes back-to-back, uh, the previous week as well as this week's episode, so we have both Jason and Jess. Please enjoy. Welcome to Word from the Mountaintop, a weekly inspirational podcast brought to you from the Mountain Luther Parish. Today's Word of the Lord will be shared by Pastor Jason or Pastor Jess Felici. St. Luke, the ninth chapter. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. I told everybody at Mount Hope that I'll have to keep the sermon interesting and engaging, more so than normal, because if you were like me, you were up at some point last night. Uh, either you got woken up by the thunder and you couldn't go back to sleep uh, or, or whatever. About the only person that I know for sure didn't wake up at all was Emma, who normally wakes up all the time. So I'm not sure exactly how that happened. Uh, but uh, we are here and we are safe and we pray for those uh, who were affected uh, by the rain and the flooding. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you. For this morning as we gather to hear your word and to meditate on what it means for our lives, we ask you to be with those in our county and beyond who are affected by flooding. Uh, and we give you thanks that you have kept us safe through the night and brought us here in joy and in peace this morning. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. How do you like it when people criticize you or something that you're very passionate about? Now, I hesitate to ask that question, but how does it feel when people criticize you? This is an interesting time. As you know, uh, we spent time at Camp Luther. Uh, It's been a week since it's been over, which is hard to believe. Um, But it's my fourth year as director. And as one of the parts of being the director is asking for feedback asking for feedback from the staff. So right now, in my email, I'm receiving 90 different evaluations of the week of camp. Because uh, this year, well, 89, because I'm the 90th. But we had 90 people on staff. And as you might imagine, uh, sometimes people critique or criticize things that I thought was a really good idea. And uh, so I get really heated when I read these evaluations sometimes. Um, and I have to think about how I respond to criticism. And so I have to be honest that sometimes I don't like it when people criticize me or things that I have done. 
But what happens when people try to use words to tear us down? Even worse than criticism. And I think about the thing that we learn when we're little. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And I have to say that whoever thought of that either lived as a hermit or was an out-and-out liar. Not sure why this saying keeps getting perpetuated, right? Because words do hurt. They really do hurt. And in fact, we know that words can do a lot more long-term damage in our lives than any stick or stone. Studies have actually shown how lasting of an impression, a lifetime of impact words can have on children. So children who receive constant criticisms about their looks or their brains or their abilities grow up believing those words that are thrown at them. And so some of us here this morning are spending our adulthood with the sounds of childhood taunts still haunting us. Dummy, fatso, geek, airhead, loser. Whatever was said to us as a child, that still echoes in our ears as adults. So what can we say then to those that use words to wound us? How should we handle our critics? How do we respond to criticism? What do we do when we're being bullied in word or in action? Should we take that to heart? Should we weigh its content? Should we ignore it? Should we let it roll off our back? Maybe fire back a critical volley of our own in return? Well, personally, if I had to be honest about it, I really do like that last option. And oftentimes I get in trouble for using it, right? This is the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth method. And that's really tempting when criticism is being given to you and you want to give it right back. And I think that that's where we are nowadays, right? We live in this heated culture of criticism where if we are critiqued, oftentimes, before we think about it, we fire back. But the honest reality is, this is nothing new. It just seems magnified these days. Look at the disciples this morning in the Gospel text, and you will see that even in the first century, we humans didn't really know what to do when criticism got out of hand. In the text this morning, Jesus turns and faces Jerusalem. And this is a very important turning point in the gospel as he shifts from his time of teaching and healing and begins making the trek toward Jerusalem where ultimately will be the Last Supper, the betrayal, the passion, Jesus' death, and later resurrection. So this is where we are in the gospel, a turning point as he moves toward Jerusalem, the holy city. And as he's on his way to Jerusalem, they enter a village of Samaritans. Now, when you hear about the Samaritans, oftentimes the first person you think of is the the woman at the well. Or, yes, that wasn't the one I was thinking of, but good, good. Charlotte's really on top of her Bible today. There's, it's not the bad Samaritan, but it's the... Good Samaritan, right? Everybody thinks of the good Samaritan, except for Charlotte, who's thinking of the woman at the well. Good, good. But we think, no, it's okay. It's okay. That's another good text, too. I hadn't even came up with that one. 
The Good Samaritan, that parable that we think about the Samaritans, and often it's this feel-good moment where we think about all the times in our life when we've been like the Samaritan, right? But here's the thing. By and large, the Samaritans as a group, and this is definitely brought up in the Woman at the Well text, the Samaritans did not get along with the Jewish people. They saw the world and especially religion very differently than the disciples and the messengers of Jesus that were sent into this village. And so, of course, their worldviews are so different. The way they look at things are so different that obviously when Jesus arrives into this village, the people of the village, these Samaritans, do not receive him. And in fact, they critique the message and the methods that Jesus and his messengers are using because they don't share the same understanding of God as the Samaritans do. Because remember that important detail at the beginning of the text. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem, the holy city for the Jewish people. But for the Samaritans, the holy city is not Jerusalem. The holy place of worship is Mount Gerizim. And a small detail like this makes them reject Jesus, his disciples, and their entire message outright. Now, as you might imagine, on this missionary journey where the disciples are trying to share the good news about Jesus, they are quite angry that the Samaritans will not receive them. How dare those Samaritans reject the holy message of salvation on what is really a technicality, where the holy city is. Well, that doesn't really matter once you get to know Jesus, right? And this is the thinking that the disciples have. And two of the disciples, James and John, they are outraged. They are the ones who do not handle criticism well. If you're somebody that doesn't handle criticism well, then you probably would be drawn into James and John because they turn to Jesus and they say, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume these people? And you thought that debates and criticism got heated nowadays. Well, they got heated back then, literally. And the honest reality is there's a lot of biblical basis for using this type of retaliation for people who rejected God or rejected a prophet. Because the disciples aim here, the messengers who went into this village, their goal is to spread the gospel. And sometimes they rely on the ancient texts, the Hebrew Bible, to inform them in how to do this. But you have to remember that Jesus is doing a new thing. And our gospel set text this morning says that Jesus turned and rebuked them for even mentioning this. For even proposing this as an option. And before they left the village, Jesus made clear that he did not approve of their method. Even if there was scriptural support for it. And furthermore, in spite of the Samaritans, the Samaritans excuse me, criticism of the disciples and Jesus and their rejection of the gospel... Jesus would not allow them to be harmed in any way. Jesus took up for the Samaritans, the very people who rejected his message, 
to keep them safe. And as amazing as this first half of the gospel text is, the second half of the gospel text is quite difficult for us to comprehend. Especially when you take it out of context. But because of the experience that they had in the Samaritan village, Jesus teaches the disciples, using these examples, what it means to have focus on the mission. And this section is a challenge to us. A man comes and says he'll follow Jesus. And Jesus says, well, if you follow me, there's not going to be much rest. There's not going to be a whole lot of comfort. And there's no place to hide from the criticism and the rejection that you will feel. And then Jesus turns and he calls another man to follow. And the man hesitates and asks, you know, Jesus, before we go, can I go and bury my father? There's a lot of debate as to what this means. Did, did his father just literally die and he wanted to go back and bury him? Or was his father in the later stages of life? And this is a, a saying in the first century of saying, let me go back home and stay with my father who's in the later stages of life. And when he's gone and I've buried him and I've made sure my family's okay, then I'll come and follow you. Which... Sounds a little bit better to our ears, but there's no evidence that that's actually the case. But either way, Jesus says, if if you want to come, then come along now. Come with me now. And another says, well, Jesus, I'll follow you, but can I go home and say farewell to my loved ones? And Jesus says this equally difficult line, no one who looks back after putting their hand to the plow, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, taken out of context, if we read just this second half of the gospel text, it might appear that Jesus is some mean business owner who demands all of his employees' time at the expense of family or leisure or spiritual health. But remember what just had happened just previously to this. The disciples got distracted by criticism. They wanted to consume an entire village with fire. So Jesus is teaching them that following him means abandoning the ways of the world in pursuit of the kingdom. And this means giving up or at least making secondary that which the world says is most dear. That which the world tells us is the most important thing. Jesus is calling us to laser focus on the mission. Laser focus on the mission of Jesus Christ is an expectation, a basis for operating for a disciple. Now this teaching is difficult. There's no way around that. Now, in our time, we don't hopefully call down fire upon those who criticize us or reject us in some way. At least I haven't experienced that from someone yet. But I will say that we do still struggle with the same urges as the disciples. Right? And if you need some examples, then listen to the phone call-in segments on the news shows. Or 
Look at your Facebook news feed or your, your Twitter scroll. And if you're not on the internet, look in my new favorite place to look on Tuesdays when I'm at the library with Emma getting books. I grab the daily news record and I turn to the letters to the editor. Now that is some entertaining stuff, right? And I think about how sad it is the way we talk to one another sometimes, either directly or indirectly. Oftentimes, fellow beloved children of God, we speak about one another in the worst ways, most especially when we disagree about something. Oftentimes, I have to go back and read the letters to the editor from the day before to figure out what people are mad about on the day that I'm reading them. And nowadays, in order to get away from this, instead of being able to dialogue or to talk with folks, we section ourselves off into what sociologists are calling echo chambers. This is an interesting phenomenon of the 21st century. And this is so that we only have to interact with folks who disagree with us as little as possible. So an echo chamber is surrounding us with folks who see everything exactly the way we see it. And this is an interesting phenomenon. As the the 4th of July comes around the corner just this week on Thursday, we have to ask ourselves, is this really what the Founding Fathers intended for us as a nation? But maybe even more important than that, It's not just people of this country, but as people of God. We have to ask ourselves, is this what Jesus intended for us as we live together, as his body, doing mission in the world? What we see in this text today is that Jesus demands that his disciples have mercy and compassion even, maybe most especially, on those with whom they disagreed. The disciples are rebuked for asking to use force, while the very Samaritans who reject the message are given mercy. This is totally reverse of the ways of the world. This is not how we would see it going down if we ourselves were writing the script and we were being the ones who were rejected. But the reality is that Jesus' way is a new way. It's not the easiest way, but it's a new way. And it calls us to see each other, especially those with whom we disagree, those who critique us, not as enemies, but as family, as a brother or a sister. Now what Jesus teaches the disciples in this text and us as we read it is a challenge, even to this day, because it calls us to acts of mercy and love even for those who disagree with us, those who criticize our actions, or those who reject our viewpoint. 
It was as hard to live this out in the first century, and it certainly is not any easier to do it today. But let us follow our Savior and default to love and mercy, even when it's the hardest thing to do. But know that we do it for the sake of Jesus, the one who called us to lay down the ways of this world to follow him in the way of the cross. Thanks be to God. Amen. appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking, whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house, Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off in protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the gospel of our Lord. Pray with me. (coughs) May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We love to cook at my house. Not, not just me cooking whatever it is that we have to get on the table in the weekday, but, but on Friday night, we love to marinate meat and, and get it on the grill and make a big production out of dinner. 
Our evenings, after long days, are usually spent watching some cooking show like Iron Chef or Chopped. We've learned all sorts of different techniques and ideas in the kitchen from watching shows like that, and, and we've gone on sometimes pretty wild culinary adventures, learning to eat things like Ethiopian food and Indian food. But we've also learned an important lesson in our kitchen. We oftentimes overcomplicate things. Alton Brown, a famous chef, tells the story of how this lesson was driven home for him. He'd been to culinary school and had worked with some of the world's top chefs, and he had trained with and befriended countless amazing cooks, and yet no one could make buttermilk biscuits like his grandma could. One day, after she had died, Alton Brown Brown sat at the counter and worked his way through her recipe again, desperate for a taste of that buttery, flaky biscuit. He worked his way through ingredient by ingredient, and he pictured her making those biscuits. And it struck him for the first time. He had been making these biscuits as though he were a healthy, strong, young chef. But when he began to mix the dough tenderly, as though his fingers were arthritic, like his grandmother's had been, he finally made the biscuits taste exactly like hers did. To this day, when he writes the recipe down for his grandmother's buttermilk biscuits, he lists arthritis in the ingredients. It's in my nature to overcomplicate things, too. I make parties more elaborate than they need to be. I overpack for every trip we ever take, including just an overnight trip. I fret over every minor detail as though it's going to make a huge difference in anything we do. And I see this same quality in a fellow named Naaman. Now, maybe it's been a while since you've heard Naaman's story. Last week in our Old Testament lesson, we heard about Elijah choosing Elisha to be the prophet who follows in his shoes. Elijah took his mantle and laid it on the shoulders of Elisha in last week's reading. And just a few chapters later, after Elisha is named the prophet of Israel, this fellow Naaman comes along. This is a story that we often gloss right over in the Old Testament, but I think it's worth wallowing in this word a little bit this morning. You see, Naaman is a great and powerful commander in the army for king for the king of Aram. He is the kind of mighty and proud man that you would picture as in charge of troops. Except for one minor detail. Naaman came down with leprosy a contagious and and painful skin disease that would make him unclean and unfit for interacting in a community, let alone for leading, commanding an army. Now, Naaman's wife had a slave, an Israelite girl who had been captured by the Aramean army. And this young girl said to Naaman's wife that he should go see the prophet in Samaria, And so Naaman clears it with the king of Aram, and he's sent out with all sorts of treasures. 
with an entire entourage of horses and chariots and slaves. But when Naaman arrives at the king of Israel's house, he tears his clothes, that king does. And he has a bit of a temper tantrum. You see, the king of Israel has a panic attack wondering why the Aramean king would send Naaman to him. It felt most certainly like the like Aram was picking a fight with Israel in the hopes of starting a war, because who can fix leprosy? But Elisha, this newly appointed prophet, Elisha overhears this kerfuffle, and he goes to the king of Israel, and he says, Send Naaman to me. Tell him to come. And so Naaman and this entire entourage, horses and chariots and treasures, all make their way to the prophet Elisha's house. And after all of this hullabaloo, the running around and the treasure and the bells and whistles and complicated entourage of of troops of people following this honorable warrior, Naaman, Elisha looks upon Naaman's leprosy and he announces, Go wash in the river Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But much like the king of Israel, Naaman throws a hissy fit. He gets angry, and he storms off. Naaman is mad that Elisha didn't do something that felt more honorable, more powerful, or magical. Naaman is mad that Elisha told him to wash in what is essentially a muddy creek compared to the powerful rivers that he's used to. You see, in Naaman's homeland, in Aram, there are rivers mighty like the Ohio or the Mississippi. And Elisha tells Naaman to go to the thorn after a bad storm, all that muddy water, and bathe there seven times. And so Naaman throws down Scripture says he turned away in a fit of rage. But remember, Naaman's not alone. Naaman has traveled with this army, this horses and chariots and and fellow servants. And his servants press him in the midst of his fit. And they ask him, Naaman, if the prophet had named a list of difficult tasks for you to accomplish, wouldn't you have done them? Why do you think that God won't work if the task is as simple as wash and be clean? And so Naaman reluctantly goes down to the murky water of the Jordan, and he washed himself. And he washed himself again. And again. And four more times after that, Naaman washed himself in the muddy creek and his skin was renewed and Naaman was made clean. Naaman believed that Elisha would have to work hard in order to cure him of his leprosy. And barring that, Naaman believed that he himself would have to work hard to prove to God his worth and to be cleaned of his leprosy. 
But God's word comes to him through the prophet Elijah and declares that he needs only wash and be clean. Naaman overcomplicated things. We might be tempted to believe that this is a singular problem that just happens to this mighty warrior named Naaman, that the temptation to overcomplicate things ends with him. But then we turn to the Gospel of Luke and we see Jesus sending out the 70 to share the good news of the kingdom of God come near. Jesus instructs the pairs to go two by two with the clothes on their back to declare peace upon the homes you enter, he says, to break bread with others, to eat what is set before you, and to tell them that the kingdom of God has drawn near to them. But whenever you are not welcomed, says Jesus, leave and shake the dust of that town from your feet in protest. But even then, say to them, yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. It's not often that I wish that the Bible was just a little bit longer than it is. It's kind of kind of a lengthy book to begin with, but but I wish there was one more book in the Bible that told us these 70 different stories, these 35 pairs that have been sent out into homes and towns where Jesus intends to go. I wish that we could hear the stories of healing the sick and the bizarre meals that were inevitably set before people with the expectation that they would eat them. I wish we could hear the stories of the fellowship and the inevitable rejection that some of them faced. But we're not told any of these encounters. Instead, we're left with our own heritage, which tells us a lot about where we've ended up all these centuries later. Like Naaman, we've begun to see ourselves as highly lauded, Maybe we aren't mighty warriors with a long entourage that follows us or treasury at our fingertips, but as hard workers, we see ourselves as deserving of good things. We see ourselves and our hard work paying off regularly. And yet, Jesus' commandment of vulnerability and of wishing a blessing of peace upon other people Jesus' commandment of fellowship and breaking bread and acknowledging the nearness of God's kingdom, none of this has changed for us. But we continue to overcomplicate things. A colleague of mine, a pastor friend, read this gospel text in church one Sunday and gave his sermon, and then paired everybody out at the back door and sent them out. No peace, no hymn, no sending, nothing. Just gave his sermon, paired them up, and wished them luck. Told them to go two by two to somebody's house and tell the good news that God's kingdom has come here. But you can imagine in a Lutheran church that their eyes were as big as dinner plates and their their chins are scraping on the floor in stunned disbelief that this is really happening. And in that church, two people withdrew their membership. 
One person didn't come back for six months. And everybody else who had been at that service went home and ate lunch. They overcomplicated it. They were so overwhelmed with the idea of having to go to somebody's house and tell them about the good news that they couldn't do it. And so they dropped the ball. It's time we stop making things harder than they really are. Sometimes the sharing of the good news means breaking bread with somebody and nudging to them and letting them know that God is close by. Is that easy? Sometimes being made well is as simple as being washed and believing that you are clean. Believing that the waters of your baptism have truly washed you of your sin. making buttermilk biscuits is as easy as using crippled fingers to make the perfect flaky dough. What could God accomplish? What could God make happen if we would stop getting in the way? If we would stop overcomplicating everything? good news of Jesus be spread if we stopped overcomplicating every task. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit.